Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to take one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, and you'll find this morning's text on page 9. Our series through the first book of the Bible continues this morning as we want to look at verse 10 of chapter 12, and I want to actually take us through verse 4 of chapter 13. Lord willing, we'll spend the next two weeks in Genesis to get us through chapter 14, and then we'll have four weeks of miscellaneous matters occupying our attention, which would mean then we'll come to the new year, Lord willing, in 2020, getting back into Genesis with chapter 15, which is indeed one of the most important texts in all the Old Testament. But before we get there and see Abram look up into the night sky in faith, what we see this morning is Abram looked down to Egypt in hope. And so let me read the text for us and pray that God would bless our study. And then we will begin together. So here now as God speaks to us through his authoritative word. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us bow in prayer together once more. Father, we do come before you this morning confessing our need of life, our need for your truth. Uh, We thank you that we do not live by bread and water alone, but only by the words that come from your mouth. So speak to us now words of life that we might indeed find life in Jesus Christ who is our risen and ascended Savior. As we think on him, give us faith that we might be conformed to his likeness. Help me to preach as you say I must, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It rarely, if ever, 
is a wise thing to take everything into your hands when you're running the risk of losing everything. And you need only to talk to a man named Andrei Karpov to know what I'm talking about. In 2007, this man from Murmansk was in a card game. It was not going terribly well. And soon he had run out of all of his money to continue on in the game, but he wanted to keep playing. But what was he going to put up as a stake to allow him to continue? And he thought through the various options that were before him until he had this light bulb moment of foolishness and said, Ah, I know what I can put up as a stake. My other half, his wife. And this is somewhat of a notorious story in certain circles. And notorious because, as you probably might assume, it did not go well for Mr. Karpov. He proceeded to lose the game, lose his wife, and she left him just days later, all because of a foolish wager. And I, of course, tell you that story because we come to something of the original wager of a wife in our text today. That's another story that's rather notorious in certain circles. That's a story that has an altogether different outcome. Because what we see is not only that Abram doesn't lose his wife, he actually increases in blessing after this wager of sorts that he makes down in Egypt. And it's a story that's altogether different because it's a story ultimately, isn't it, about God who protects his people, God who protects his promise, God who stays with his people even when they seem to abandon their trust in Him. And that really is the main theme of this text. God will protect His promise. God protects His promise even in surprising ways. When Abram puts the promise in peril, it's still sure, it's still steadfast, because God is working on behalf of what He has promised to Abram, what He has ensured of Abram and all his descendants, even when Abram seems to want to put it into the hornet's nest of trouble. Uh, so this is the text that helps remind us of God's faithfulness to His promise. Uh, you might know that the story of Scripture, oftentimes you can read it as a This idea that God keeps His promises to His people even when they seem to run away from their faith. But it's a story also of miniatures and microcosms. And what I mean by that is, in every way, you can trace out Abram's life. And it does function as something like a miniature of the Christian life. Of how life ordinarily goes for the people of faith. But kids, what you're going to see this morning is the truth that God tests His people. And there are two normal responses to God's tests. The response of fear or the response of faith. It's also a story of microcosm, because students, you want to pay attention to the story as it works its way through from beginning to end, and you're going to try to understand, I want you to understand, how this might have uniquely been an encouragement to the nation of Israel as God redeemed them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt so many centuries later. And so you remember, if you weren't with us last week, where we left off the story was in verse 9. God has called this man Abram to himself. Uh, you need to know that Abram was a man who came from an idolatrous family, a dark spiritual background. 
that for no reason that was deserving within Abram, God called him to himself and gave him merciful and gracious promises, called him to forsake everything and follow him because God promised to make his name great promised to make him into a great nation so that all the nations on the earth would be blessed through this one man, Abram. And so after a period of time of delay, Abram finally followed in faith and he wandered his way, journeyed his way into the promised land. And you'll notice where we left off in verse 8 and 9, Abram was offering worship unto the Lord as he was calling upon the name of the Lord in faith. And as we pick up the story today, we're moving from Abram's faith to Abram's fear. Look at verse 10 of chapter 12 once again. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And surely you can't help but notice this double repetition of the phrase, in the land. This land that's so important to the covenant promises that God makes to Abram and to all of his descendants. So important is this promise. If you just look up to verse 7 of chapter 12, it was so significant, this land promise, that God sealed it with a theophany. God appeared before Abram and said, To your offspring I will give you this land. But what we see is by verse 10, the promise has become a problem for Abram. There was a somewhat legendary story that attached itself to one of my favorite professors in seminary, a story that is supposedly quite true. Uh, Years ago, at the beginning of semester, he was working his way through the syllabus, and one of the students raised their hand and said, Professor, are there going to be any pop quizzes in the course this year? And he looked to his right. They were in the second story of the institution at the time, and he looked at this window and said, you will surely find me coming through that window as me giving you a pop quiz in this class. So rest assured, it won't happen. Well, in weeks to come, there were no pop quizzes in the course, and not long before the semester ended, there was a morning when the professor didn't show up on time, and he was normally quite punctual, and the students were uh, trying to chat their way throughout the next few minutes waiting for the professor to show up wondering if they were going to get this free day when suddenly they heard this scratching at the window (laughs) notice the window sliding up professor nettles sliding through coming to behind his desk saying forgive me for being late there is a pop quiz today (laughs) and He went to extreme lengths in many ways, if you know anything about his teaching career, to to keep pop quizzes and sudden tests away from his students. But I want you to know that's not how God deals with his people. God often tests his people. And what we're looking into this morning is a test, maybe the first of many, that God is going to give this man named Abram. Don't you know that so often spiritual triumphs come right before spiritual tests. Just ask Abram how often God tends to tease out the level of trust in the heart of his people. You could ask Moses too. The nation of Israel from which we read earlier in the law in Exodus 20. This is a test God had given them to test out their fear. You could even do the same thing with Jesus Christ after he's baptized. And the Spirit descends on him like a dove. What does the Holy Spirit do? Leads him out to the wilderness for 40 days of testing. 
The apostles knew the testing nature of God. Even Jesus' half-brother James speaks about in James chapter 1, verse 12, the certainty of trials and tests that will come to God's people. And should they pass the test, they will receive the crown of life. So, kids, what you want to recognize and hear the notice this morning is God tests His people that they might understand the true love and faith they have towards God in their hearts. And Abram, as you walk through this test, it's going to show us something about the fears that he has down in the core of his soul. And the first is a fear of want. You'll notice again in verse 10, there's famine in the land, twice emphasized. He was in an area of the promised land that if you know anything about the Negev region, where he probably was at this time, it's a cracked, arid, parched, desert place in which famines were quite common. So that there was a famine in the land was not terribly unusual for Abram and his experience in this land. But this is no ordinary famine. If you look at the end of verse 10 again, my ESV translation has it there was a severe famine in the land. Uh, More pointedly in Hebrew, it's the land was heavy with famine. So this is no ordinary famine that God is using to test Abram in this moment. And I do hope you know that sometimes God will call you to a place and bring famine in the land. He may be calling you to a place of want instead of plenty. He may be calling you to a place of need instead of abundance. The land that was supposed to be a land full of blessing seems to now become a land full of cursing. What's Abram going to do? Trust God to provide for him in the midst of his want in this promised land to meet the needs that he does have? Well, his fear of want leads to fear of man. Notice verse 11 through 13. He decides to go down to Egypt, and when he was about to enter into Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So say you are my sister." that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, if you've ever read your way through the Bible and are somewhat maybe even familiar with the story of Genesis, you'll find these accounts, won't you, in the patriarchal history of the first book of the Bible. And you kind of scratch your head and roll your eyes above and think, what on earth was he doing? Now, I want to resuscitate Abram's reputation a bit. Because in this scene, most people stand aghast at what he supposedly did, willing to sell his wife into suffering so that he might save his own skin. Why one commentator calls Abram's actions nothing more than the baseless, dirty business of a self-centered man. I don't think that's the case at all. And here's why I say that. A couple of things maybe to note. Sarai was Abram's sister. We find that later on, don't we, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 20. His half-sister had the same father, different mother. And the brother-sister relationship in the ancient world was much more significant than it is today. It was not uncommon in the ancient world for husbands to adopt their wives as sisters, given the legalities of the time, because it would amplify the authority and the status of the marriage to be brother and sister. Importantly, and probably most significantly for this story, is that brothers were responsible to negotiate their sister's marriage. 
So you'll see this play out later on multiple times in the book of Genesis. It was given to the brothers to protect their sisters whenever prospective suitors would come. It was given to the brothers to negotiate the terms, the arrangements, the future dowry that maybe would come from the man to the woman. So what Abram is doing here, and this is what you need to see happening in this passage, I think what he is doing here is following an ancient Near Eastern custom, ordinary strategy and tactic by which he's trying to buy time. Hey, we're going to go into the land. If you say that you're my wife, they're going to kill me, and then all will be for loss. So just say you're my sister, because in fact you are my sister, and then we'll buy time. We'll be able to negotiate with the Egyptians, maybe a settlement that leads to protection and provision of us all. And then underneath that is the reality that Abram in this moment was responsible not just to Sarai, but was to many. It's kind of hard to see it exactly in this passage, but if you took everything that we just saw last week, and according to the ancient Near Eastern customs of the time, it's why scholars think by this point in Abram's life he had something of a shakedom. By that I mean he had hundreds of people he was responsible for between family and servants. And it was normal at this time in the ancient Near Eastern world that if he came in there, they would just kill him because they wanted his wife. And then there would be an incredible threat, not just to Sarai, but to the entire family as well. And so what you need to understand Abram is doing in this moment is he's trying a stall tactic. I think the problem is less what he did. The problem is more that he did it. He was taking matters into his own hands, trying a human strategy to bring protection to his family when in reality all he's done is put the promise in peril because notice how it immediately goes awry. He doesn't get to negotiate with the Egyptians, does he? Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman, that's Sarai, was very beautiful. You can kind of compare the language to what was just said in Abram's fear of verse 11, that she was a woman beautiful in appearance, more literally beautiful in form. Uh, We know from the book that she's 65 years old at this time. If you want to do something of a modern equivalence, that would put her in our kind of modern length of life as something in her mid to late 30s. Stunning in appearance was she, and the Egyptians see it. But they don't want to negotiate with Abram over Sarai, do they? Look at verse 15. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So you see it, don't you? No ordinary customs of the day were observed here. She was just taken straight into Pharaoh's house. And he's put himself and the promise in quite a pickle, hasn't he? Where's Abram's self-reliant planning got the promise? From our viewpoint, from man's perspective, it's totally trapped. And it's not uncommon for little faith to lead to large traps, is it? You have an enemy named Satan who's always about the business of laying traps around you. His minions to lay snares here and there, kids, to get you stuck where you ought not to be. So what's going to happen? Well, unexpected stuff is going to happen is why you should see it immediately from verse 16. Notice what happens to Abram as a result. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. You see the unexpected nature of it in that he has seemingly put the promise in peril and he gets rich because of it. I was explaining this to my children yesterday, that he got camels. 
camels he got, I was telling my children. And one of my kids said, what's the big deal about camels? They're so boring. And that is a verbatim quote from last night in the Stone household. And I said, well, just wait till tomorrow morning when I mention you in the sermon. Because <laughs> what you need to know, kids, camels were very important in the ancient Near Eastern world. They were Seriously, the equivalent of a Rolls Royce of the ancient Near Eastern culture. The most extravagant and expensive vehicle you could ever have was a camel. And he has camels. This is something even a stereotype, the way that these words come in verse 16 of extravagant wealth. That's what Abram has in this moment as a result of what's happened in Egypt. He's become incredibly wealthy. But the promise is still in peril. He still is quite trapped as Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's house. That's where his fear has got his family. There was a 19th century missionary by the name of John Patton. He was a Scottish Presbyterian who took the gospel of Christ to the New Hebrides Islands in the Pacific. And it was a courageous mission that he went on, not least because he was not only ministering Christ to sinful people, he was ministering Christ to sinful cannibals. The first missionaries to show up in the New Hebrides Islands were immediately clubbed to death when they got on shore and eaten by these tribes, and that's where John Patton was going. He was more successful at the beginning of his ministry, able to build this missionary center this mission house, uh, but later on in his ministry in the New Hebrides, one night he was surrounded in this house by natives who meant to burn him out in order to kill he and his wife. And so he and his wife were praying for God's deliverance all night long as these natives were surrounding the house but not doing anything, not assaulting it, not burning them out, not attacking it. And they were stunned and altogether surprised when they woke up in the morning or the morning sun came and found that these natives were just disappearing off into the trees. And about 12 months later, uh, the tribal chief of these natives, he was converted to Christ and Patton was reflecting with him on that fearful night 12 months prior. And Patton asked him, why did you leave? And the chief replied with his own question, who were all those people with you? And as they continued talking, the tribal chief said, Oh, we saw hundreds of brightly adorned men with drawn swords circling around your post. We dared not attack such a force. It was unexpected deliverance in the midst of a great problem. And it's unexpected deliverance that now comes to Abram as we move from Abram's fear to God's faithfulness. Just notice the first word of verse 17. But, certainly the first word at least in my ESB, I've, I've told you before that but is the greatest gospel conjunction that you can find in all of Scripture. Maybe you've noticed how noticeably absent Yahweh is to the preceding narrative. As Abram is going about his business, trying to protect his family, trying to secure his loved ones, you almost want to ask, don't you? Where's God in all of this? Where's Abram's faith that was immediately in the preceding scene calling on the name of the Lord? Well, like a firelit comet streaking across a dark night, the main protagonist of Scripture finally arrives. You notice the rest of verse 12. But the Lord 
afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The original language is a little bit more clunky, but certainly more intensive when it talks about the plagues that God sent on Pharaoh's house. It more literally says something like, the Lord plagued Pharaoh with great plagues. And we don't know what the plagues were. Maybe it was some sort of disease, boils on the skin of Pharaoh's family. Maybe it was the destruction of all Pharaoh's livestock. Maybe it was as though that the famine had followed Abram all the way into Egypt as Pharaoh's supplies were used up in some sort of a plague. Well, we don't know exactly what it was, but we do know that God plagued Pharaoh to protect his promise. God will protect his promise and often does it in ways that we would not expect. And you don't want to treat this plague of God in some sort of trivial, light manner. He's afflicting one person to save another. And just as we have no idea what the plagues were, we really have no idea how Pharaoh realized the purpose of the plagues. But he realized it, didn't he? Look at verse 18 and 19. Pharaoh calls Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? And why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. It's exasperation that's understandable. It's exasperation that leads to Abram's deportation. Verse 20, Pharaoh gave men orders concerning Abram and they sent him away with his wife in all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, and he and his wife, and all that he had with Lot with him into the Negeb. God will protect his promise, even when his people don't cry out for that protection. So faithful is God to his covenant. I spent most of my high school years in Florida playing soccer with a group of guys that were selected from around the nation to live together year-round. And one of my roommates was from Wisconsin, and he was known to all of us as Rock. That was partly because he was this bulwark shot stopper in the goal. He was our goalkeeper. But I think the origin of the nickname was more inclined to he had sideburns that matched a very popular pro wrestler of the same name at the time. And Rock had some very interesting, quite endearing quirks about him when you just got to live with him. Uh, One of them was he loved to watch reruns of movies and television shows over and over and over. And the movie he was in love with most, he always would say it's his favorite movie, that in that time, at least 15 plus years ago, was on TNT all the time, was the Shawshank Redemption, over and over and over. And if you know the story, it's the story about a man named Andy Dufresne who is wrongly sent to prison for a crime he didn't commit. And early on when he's going into prison, he receives a Bible from the warden. And the warden says, salvation lies within. And by the end of the movie, 20 plus years later about, Dufresne has broken out of prison. Because what he did was he took this small rock hammer, hid it within the Bible, And for 20 years, just slowly chiseled away at the rock until he had a tunnel out of the prison. And obviously, in a technical sense of cinematography and literary devices, it was a foreshadowing. Salvation lies within this early indication of a future event. 
and you actually get the exact same thing in our text today, you have the exodus in miniature and microcosm. Do you see it? God's people going to Egypt because of a famine. Pharaoh takes God's people into his own house. God plagues Pharaoh's household to let his people go. Pharaoh lets the people go. Deliverance to the promised land comes. Why would this story have been so encouraging to an early Israelite living not long after the exodus that came to mark their identity as God's people? Because it would remind them that God has been doing this from the very beginning of his relationship with his people, protecting his promise, ensuring covenant faithfulness, that even when his people don't deserve it, even when they take matters into their own hands and trust their own devices, their own wisdom, their own strength, and their own strategies, God is still able to keep his promise, and God will keep his promise. This is how it ordinarily goes. But even as the text continues, and I want to kind of bring us to a conclusion, I want to notice a few more things about how life ordinarily goes in this promise-keeping and promise-making God underneath His sovereign grace. The first of which we see about the life of faith is the life of faith is a life of wrestling with fear. Someone once said, the Christian life is not a fortress but a furnace, not a vacation but a vocation, not a resting but a wrestling. And maybe you do know that. How so often life is wrestling for faith in the midst of a trial, wrestling for trust in the midst of affliction. In Abram's life, what he shows us is he's always kind of bouncing back and forth between fear and faith. There's this wrestling reality to our life under God, and oftentimes the most essential part of our wrestling is simply the choice between either taking the trial into our own hands or entrusting the trial into God's hands. One is a response of fear and self-trust. One is a response of faith in trust in God. I wonder maybe where in your life you might be wrestling for faith right now. Tempted to trust in your own strategy. Tempted to cling to your own plans to bring about what you think you need. All the while, like Abram, you see it's falling quite quickly into a trap. The life of faith is a life of wrestling with fear. It's also a life of worshiping with thanksgiving. Notice verse 2 of chapter 13. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, in gold. That's why we want to bleed our way, as you, if you will, into chapter 13 today, because there's this bracketed, bookended nature to the scene, because the same word that's used here for very rich in verse 2 was used for severe in verse 10 of chapter 12. He left because of a severe famine. He came back with severe wealth. He left because of a heavy famine. He came back with heavy wealth such as the unexpected kindness and compassion of God. And so Abram, as you'll see in the next two verses, he's journeying back through the land from which he came, verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram once again called on the name of the Lord. So by the end of our text, he's doing what he should, be, should have been doing at the beginning of the text, calling on the name of the Lord in prayer. By the end of the text, he's doing what he should have been doing at the beginning of the text, Trusting 
in God's sovereign provision. And it's quite striking if you notice how these chapters continue and Abram is going throughout the land building altars, building these tiny towers, because we said in weeks past, Abram is Yahweh's answer to the people at Babel. These people who wanted a great name for themselves, and as a result, they built this great tower trying to reach into the heavens. And God says, no, in judgment, I'm going to scatter you among the nations and instead choose one man named Abram who doesn't deserve it, and I will make his name great. And he's going to go throughout the land building what? Tiny towers, altars that were somewhat permanent, Altars that, of course, didn't exalt the name of whoever built the altar. Altars that were meant to exalt the name of God, who is the sovereign, gracious king over all. Some of you may need to build an altar, if you will, today in the place where God has called you. Trusting that he has brought you there and will provide for you there, even when it seems like all is lost. God will protect his promise even in the most surprising ways, and he protects his promise in this text by plaguing Pharaoh. As we end, you want to think about the plaguing providence of God. Do you have a doctrine of God that says he will plague one family to deliver another? Do you have a theology of our Father that says he will afflict one person? to deliver another. If you don't, not only do you not have the God of Scripture, you do not have the God of salvation. Because understand what was going to come in many, many years on into the future, the true seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abram. Jesus Christ would come. He would live the perfect life. He would hang on the cursed tree of Calvary as a perfect sacrifice for sinners like you and me. And what did God do there? He plagued his son to deliver his people. When he cried, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When blood and water flowed, what you hear, what you see is God plaguing a person to save another. He was afflicted that you might be forgiven he was plagued that you might be forgiven. He was struck that you might be set free. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And of course, there's a plaguing reality that threatens all of us. If you're in here today and you're not a Christian, if you continue in your unrepentance and unbelief, the Bible says that there is a time in which the plague of punishment will fall on you for all eternity. The good news, however, isn't it? God sent his son to be plagued in your place. That if you turn from your sin and trust in him, you'll find salvation and new life, deliverance to the promised land through Jesus Christ because God protects his promise in Jesus Christ because Christ himself is what? The very yes and amen to all of God's promises. Bless him today because he protects his promises even in the most surprising of ways. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are a God of, of power, that you provide for us in abundance, 
that you protect us even in the midst of our faithlessness. Do restore our hope. Do increase our trust as we want indeed to be faithful in our lives of faith as we follow you wherever you might lead us. So strengthen us, we pray, in Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is our great inheritance. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.